Hello, everyone. GM, GM, welcome to the Sulfate Podcast, where we have conversations with builders and founders in the Solana ecosystem. Welcome to the episode today. This is a, this is a super cool one. This is amazing. Oh, so much fun. So much fun. So Everyone great. knows what I'm going to say, right? Like new favorite person. New favorite person. You know, makes fun of me Rishi, for it. For real though, Rishi <laughs> every single was time. dope. <laughs> Rishi might be my new favorite person. Um, oh, so, shit. Oh, shit. Uh, we had Rishi from Mycelium Networks on the episode today and phenomenal conversation. We talked all about Helium and IoT and and kind of like a bunch of D-Pin stuff and how D-Pin works. And Helium, Rishi and, and the Helium team they have built this uh, this massive test bed of sixteen hundred well, mycelium team, right? That, did I not say mycelium? You said you said helium. Oh well, they use helium. You <laughs> know what helium. I mean. Rishi I and the mycelium Just it clear team for the listeners. Fair Rishi enough, and the mycelium team. This is how this is how excited I am for this. This is so cool. They covered sixteen hundred square miles of northwestern Arkansas with IoT coverage with with different deep end networks. So IoT. They've got 5G, uh, Helium 5G out there. And they have this massive footprint of IoT coverage, of, of network coverage that people and companies and products can go and, and test their various uh, deep in things on. And this is so cool. Everything Helium, like I, I just switched to Helium Mobile on my phone. I've got a Helium hotspot running over here, indoor Wi-Fi. This is all insanely cool to me. It's, it's freaking awesome. I, uh, I will say before we dig into the episode, I, this is the most excited I've been in a, in a very long time. Uh, I, 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 Verified. I know it's a true statement. I, I like, I, like I get excited about most episodes, but mm-hmm. I feel about deep in right now, the way I felt about DeFi in 2020, which is really what got me into crypto. Right. Uh, I am, I am so freaking excited. Rishi, is so good at explaining what all this stuff is. So if you're over here wondering what is D-Pin, why does it matter? This is the episode for you. Um, before we dig in, though, let's talk sponsors. Um, we're really excited to have our yeah, kind of our first excited. sponsor. Uh, we're super excited to be sponsored by Underdog Protocol. Uh, Underdog Protocol. If if you aren't already aware of them, like they they basically surface APIs to make it easy to mint, manage, and, and index digital assets. They handle the the NFT mints for a bunch of names you probably already know, like Solana Mobile and Soulflare and all sorts of things. Uh, Tony and Kevin are super awesome. We've had them on the show. Go listen to that episode if, if you haven't. Um, but yeah, we're super stoked to be sponsored by them. Check out Underdog Protocol. Kevin and Tony are, are awesome. Let's get all to right, the episode. Let's, uh, let's get to the episode. Nothing in this podcast is or should be considered financial advice. Any opinions and thoughts expressed are solely those of the individual. They do not represent the opinions of any entity. Enjoy. What's your background, um, you know, over the last 10, 15 years or so? Yeah. Um, Okay. So I kind of got my start in crypto on accident in 2011. Um, So kind of way back. Um, Buddy of mine, um, who's kind of more of a computer science guy, um, he was working at an Apple store as an Apple genius. And he was, um, you know, I, I didn't used to hear from him very much, but one day he called me up and he was like, I've got something really important. I want to run past you. And I was a little bit more of a business and finance guy, very interested in economics. And, you know, I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, no, let's, let's meet up and, and let's talk about this. Um, well, he, we sat around my mom's kitchen and for the next hour and a half, he walked me through this crazy network that was run by computers that was permissionless and trustless called Bitcoin. 
And um, I just remember wrapping my brain around it from a business school perspective and, uh, you know, understanding how the Fed works and understanding, you know, the banking system and, um, you know, kind of everything that we've grown up in and the way that the world operates today and just kind of taking that, um, you know, as a little bit of a, okay, this is how things are. And then hearing about Bitcoin and realizing that something like that actually existed in the world, it very much did just break my mind. And I couldn't forget that conversation ever. I spent the next three weeks just scouring the internet for the, the remnants of like anything that uh, could give me more information about Bitcoin. And of course, back then, it was just a year or two old. It was pretty, pretty new. And it was just nerds like us that were digging into stuff like that. Um, so I, you know, I spent the, the next three weeks just obsessed with this concept of a decentralized network, um, a permissionless and trustless um, new way to kind of potentially build a banking system. Um, and, you know, the rebel in me was kind of like, all right, we got to do this. Um, and so kind of talking to my <laughs> friend, I was like, how do we get involved? Like, I'm, I'm sold. I'm in. You know, he was like, the network checks out from the computer side. I was like, the economics and the simple supply demand and mineral extraction um, sort of model, um, you know, that can definitely work. I mean, especially if we start, you know, from scratch, um, it's a good model to, to work with. What do we do? How do we get involved? And he's like, we got two options. We can either buy it, uh, buy Bitcoin, or we can mine it. And I was like, well, mining sounds like a lot more fun. So um, <laughs> we got on Tiger Direct and I bought $600 worth of equipment. I had just graduated college. I had a job. Um, he was kind of still, still trying to figure things out. So I was like, all right, I'll buy this equipment. You build it. Uh, and we'll set it up in your mom's basement where you're living right now. And so that's what we did. Uh, and that summer, so about two months, two and a half months during that summer, we mined 20 Bitcoin. And this is 2011. So the price of Bitcoin is 12 bucks a pop. Um, and, you know, we thought we were doing pretty good. And, you know, we're sitting around the computer just looking at some stuff. And one day his mom walks downstairs and she is pissed. And um, she's like, Scott. The so bill is six hundred dollars. That's why my electric bill is so high. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She's like, this is a six hundred dollar electrical bill, and this is last month's bill. Turn that off or get out of the house. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, okay, we, we got to figure something out. And so she leaves, and he looks at me, and he's like, we're screwed. I can't, I can't move out. I was like, I know you can't move out. Uh, what are we going to do? He's like, well, I got to turn this off. And I was like, okay. So we started doing some math. All right, we had six hundred bucks in computer parts. And we had a $600 power bill and we had another probably $600 power bill coming the following month, you know, so uh, we're racking up the, the expenses and we looked at our Bitcoin. We've got 20 Bitcoin. We were really proud of that um, because we had kind of talked about the future and like, Oh, this is going to change everything and all that stuff. Uh, but that was worth 240 bucks. <laughs> and Scott had a big problem on his hands because he needed a place to live. And, um, so we, we made a deal actually. We had to, we had to shut down the operation. That was my first business venture, by the way. Uh, it lasted two and a half months, but we had to shut it down and we made a deal. And the deal was Scott would keep the computer equipment so he could liquidate that. He would also keep the Bitcoin, 20 Bitcoin. That was worth 240 bucks. He would work extra hours at the Apple store to cover those power bills of 1200 bucks. And he would take, um, you know, when he was able to kind of build up some cushion, he would take $600 and pay me back for the equipment. So Scott kept the Bitcoin, he kept the hardware, I got my money back. 
Um, and that was the deal that we made. And, you know, it wasn't like I didn't really know that Bitcoin, you know, we all thought it would be great and it would be successful. Um, and so on the surface, it kind of sounds like I got the, the short end of the stick, uh, cause Scott kept the Bitcoin. He ended up buying himself a, a nice house with it. He had a nice wedding. Uh, I think he still got a little bit of, of Bitcoin as well. Um, but you know, about a month and a half later, Scott gave me the 600 bucks back and I went back and I bought like 45 Bitcoin with that because the price was still 12 bucks. So all in all, we both worked out pretty well, but that was my first, um, real foray into Bitcoin and crypto. Um, and you know, from that point forward, I stayed in, uh, the mining circles a little bit. I followed, um, you know, just the slow trickle of adoption that was happening back then as more people found out about it. Um, did some Ethereum mining a few years later. Um, and that's, that's really, you know, when I got that bug put in me, that never left. And it was kind of one of those things where it all goes back to that kitchen table where somebody explained to me, um, how this works, that it could exist and that it did exist. And that's really all I needed, uh, from that point forward. That's, that's so cool. I'm, I'm I'm always (laughs) so impressed with people who got the vision early. Right. Like I, I feel like it took me years of just like drips of information slowly permeating my brain. Right. Before it finally clicked when I actually like interacted with some DeFi stuff on Ethereum. Right. Like that's the first time I was like, oh, I see where this could be useful and why it matters. So to be sitting there in 2011 and just from hearing someone explain you know, the, the general concept of Bitcoin for you to sort of latch onto that and, and see the potential there is really, really cool. I like, I love hearing those stories. Yeah. I mean, you know, I also got to say, I think it was, the timing was pretty important, you know, like during that time I just graduated college, I was looking at a corporate job that I was getting ready to start. And I was like, Oh gosh, is this going to be my life? Like, do I have to do the corporate thing? Um, cause I'm more of an entrepreneur. I'm more of, you know, I like to kind of do my own thing and try new things and fail at things. And, um, and so for, for a lot of it, you know, a lot of it was, I was, I was searching for something. I didn't know what I was searching for, but I was definitely searching for something. And so I was open to a lot and, and it just hit the right way. Nice. So, um, let's maybe shift over more to like my mycelium or, or really just physical infrastructure in general. Uh, obviously you, you were doing some hardware stuff early on, right. With, with mining, when did that transition into what I think, you know, what we now think of as, as deep in. All right. So we'll fast forward to the lockdown pandemic lockdown summer of 2020. <laughs> there was a lot of people. Everyone, everyone's favorite time period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the further we go in just like time, we'll always look back and like, that'll be like, Oh yeah, then, you know, cause that was such a weird time. Uh, but yeah, I, I, everybody was home. Uh, people were getting adjusted to having kids at home and having to work from home and getting bored and not having, you know, be able to go to restaurants and movie theaters and stuff like that. And, and same thing with me, I was at home, um, you know, working on my own projects. I was kind of in between projects at the time. And I thought it was a great time to just like pick up some house projects and keep myself busy during that summer. And, uh, I kind of regretted it later, but one of the projects that I decided to do was I was going to build a massive rock patio, um, outside of my house and just kind of like 
you know, like bring the property value up and, you know, do something cool and, you know, kind of be like, Hey mom, look what I, you know, when she came to visit and like, look, I actually did something cool. Um, but you know, it was like moving like two tons of rocks and all by hand and laying them and then relaying them and all that kind of stuff. And so I was looking for anything else to do other than that. So I caught myself taking breaks, running inside, getting on the computer and just digging into this freaking thing called helium. And I don't know exactly how I found it. I mean, it must've been a targeted ad or, you know, one of my crypto circle buddies mentioned it. Um, but it took me a little while to wrap my brain around it. And I caught myself just running back inside to try to learn a little bit more and running outside, laying some rocks, thinking of something new, running back inside, trying to figure it out. Um, but it made me feel very similar to the way I felt when I first heard about Bitcoin. It was that same feeling inside where it was like, there's something here, bro. And you got to figure this out. And, um, and, you know, ultimately I arrived at kind of the conceptual conclusion that what Bitcoin promised for the monetary system or the banking system, or, you know, to revolutionize the way that money is transferred, um, accounted for, you know, through its transparency and through its permissionless system that 10 years later, I was looking at the same technology applied to something other than money. And in this case, it was data packets or data transfer, the same unit unit of measurement, um, transparency, the same permissionless, trustless tracking system, uh, and just a more efficient way to have better control over our data, which has continued to become a bigger and bigger issue. But for me, it was the fascination of applying blockchain to something other than money. That was the thing that got me. And I was like, okay, now this is kind of what I felt like this would lead to something like this. Um, and so after a couple of weeks, figured it out. There was a two token system that took me a little while to kind of wrap my brain around. And, and once it made sense, um, I immediately started calling up all my buddies and I was like, yo, I need you to send me some money because I'm going to start a new project. I was like, just send me a thousand bucks. Let me buy some hotspots. I'm going to get these things out here. Uh, and I'm in Northwest Arkansas. Northwest Arkansas is a really great place. I had moved here a few years before uh, 2020. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a nice place, very nice people. It's a smaller place, but there's a lot of towns and cities kind of mixed together that all kind of work and run together. We've got a university. Um, we've got three Fortune 500 companies here, Walmart, J.B. Hunt, and Tyson. Um, and so those are transportation, retail, and food. Um, and so together they kind of create this giant supply chain, manufacturing, logistics powerhouse. Uh, and a lot of people don't know, but it's all headquartered right here in Northwest Arkansas. And, um, you know, secondary to the blockchain and data transfer was the actual network that Helium was building, which was an IOT network, an internet of things network, a network for low band, low powered devices that, you know, one of the features of this type of network is because of that low band, the range was incredible. And so it had certain use cases that can be applied to rural areas, large agricultural areas. Um, and it had certain efficiencies that, you know, we really don't think about because we're mostly glued to our cell phones uh, and that operates on a different band. So I spent a few weeks learning about IoT and I just kind of looked around and I realized this is the perfect place to build an IoT network. Um, and then that was it. Then it was just like, okay, I decided in my brain, I was going to blanket the entire Northwest Arkansas region, uh, 1600 square miles with IOT coverage and helium was going to allow me to do it. And I needed to buy enough hotspots to get started. 
And that's literally how we started Mycelium. We spent three months rolling out the first batch of hotspots. Um, it worked really well. I mean, it was a really cool experience to see, you know, you can see on a computer screen when a node comes online and then it starts to produce blocks or starts to kind of, you know, perform whatever duty it's going to perform. Um, but to know that what we were seeing on screen was actually represented by a physical piece of hardware that was 20 miles away, 45 miles away, and that it was speaking and communicating and working with other nodes that were 16 miles away, 12 miles away, five miles away. Uh, and so watching, watching the network come online as we were putting these nodes out one by one in the early days was an incredible feeling. I mean, it was really incredible because we watched a node come online and another one come online and immediately start communicating with that one. And then another third node come online and start talking to both. Right. So you had this exponential curve of, um, you know, productivity, I guess you could say, or the quality of the network communications. And it got stronger. You can visualize so the actual network effect as you just see each of the nodes popping online, just like boop, 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 like that. That's yep. cool. And, and every new node that popped online was inherently stronger than the previous ones because they had buddies that they could talk to, you know? So uh, that was just a super motivating experience. And like living through that, I still remember how that felt. Um, and you know, from that point on, it was like, all right, we need hundreds of these things if we're going to blanket this area with IOT coverage. Um, and then about six months into it, four months into it, I kind of realized, okay, this is not a hobby anymore. This has turned into something that needs to be incorporated and, you know, we're going to need to raise a little bit of capital in order to actually do what I want to do. So that was, those were the beginning days of mycelium. That is insanely cool. I think, um, there's, I have, so disclosure, I actually, I listened to another podcast that you did. I can't remember where, but so there's like some questions of things I want to dive into of, uh, from the things from that podcast, but to, to cycle back, can you explain what these IOT nodes are, what the IOT network is and like what, what the actual purpose is? Yeah. So a lot of people don't really think about it. I mean, we tend to utilize for, you know, what are, where our interests are as human beings, we tend to um, just go with the fastest network that's available. Um, LTE, 4G, 5G. If we want to talk to grandma, you know, across the country uh, and FaceTime with her, we need high bandwidth. Um, that's what our cell phones work off of. That's what allows for streaming video and all that stuff. Um, but a lot of people don't think about it. 3G networks from like five, six, seven, eight years ago, they're still up and active and they're still used for a lot of stuff. Aren't um, they free to use now too? Um, maybe or close to them. Yeah. Yeah. They should be really, really cheap. Um, and it's because it's a little bit outdated technology that doesn't offer the high speeds that people want to really pay for to connect their cell phones. But if you go further back, um, you know, and you go lower band, so 5G is five gigahertz. 3G is 3 gigahertz. If you go back down to like 1 gigahertz and sub 1 gigahertz, you get into megahertz. And so the IoT network is actually... The, the Helium IoT network in the United States is a 915 megahertz band. So it's extremely low band. And so what that means is relatively low power compared to your 5G you know, cell phone draining your battery in 12 hours. Um, so the devices that connect to this network... Uh, can actually be online for months and in some cases years without needing a battery replacement. Uh, that also points to those types of devices being able to be made disposably, right? Because they're so cheap, so low powered, you can get kind of a disposable battery um, and that becomes economical. 
Um, in addition, your range is extremely long. So as we get into 5G, you know, you've got to be a little bit closer to the source. Um, sub one gigahertz. So like the IoT network, we've actually been able to ping um, nodes 10 miles apart. And that's pretty common um, to be able to do in certain situations. Um, so super, super long range. So and, and that's with cases, relatively small, that's with relatively small pieces of hardware too. We're not talking big cell yeah. towers to in order to get that kind of range. Right. Yeah. I mean, from a coverage standpoint, these nodes were like little hard drives with the little antenna sticking up. The devices are getting smaller and smaller and they weren't like this three years ago, but today, um, you know, there's a product called Nanotags and it's literally a sticker with a tiny little piece of hardware behind it. And it's meant to be stuck on packages that you ship through the mail, um, or you could just literally stick it on anything and then it gets thrown out with the box. So these things are getting oh, super, cool. super small. Oh, and you could have like real time geo tracking on packages as, yeah, a, as opposed nobody... to like what, as opposed to what you have now, which is like, yeah, FedEx told me that they checked in at this place at this yeah. time. It's yeah, like, like real time. It's like That's Memphis wild. and then California. And it's like, well, what yeah. happened in between? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's so cool. Oh, That's man. really cool. Yeah. I didn't know that those were, those existed. Yeah. And I mean, you can kind of extrapolate it out into like all these creative solutions that, that developers and entrepreneurs are building now, um, you know, agriculturally, like, you know, if you used to have one larger sensor that kind of looked at two acres, uh, and looked at soil, you know, uh, soil, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, the amount of water in the soil, um, you know, humidity of the air, um, the amount of sunlight, the temperature, any earth vibrations, you know, just any type of sensor system, uh, that, you know, from an agricultural perspective or from a factory perspective, but now it's like, okay, let's take all these sensors. Let's pack them into a smaller form frame. Uh, let's, you know, give them a battery life of two years, right? Which, you know, that's like unheard of if you're connecting to Wi-Fi or cellular, you know, if you've got a cellular chip backhaul, like that in itself uses a ton of power. Um, and now it's kind of like, okay, well, we used to have one sensor for this particular purpose. Um, now we can have like 7,000, you know, and they can all be specialized and it could cost about the same amount of money and give you a lot more data. Um, and so it's basically like, you know, instead of building on Wi-Fi, instead of building on cellular, we're kind of going backwards and we're just getting rid of all that stuff. And so if you're trying to track a device, let's say a, a bicycle or something like that, um, if you're running Wi-Fi, you're going to be out of zone in a lot of areas. So you go with the cellular backhaul and then you're powering, you know, that cellular backhaul um, and there goes part of your battery life. If you're looking at like a, um, a scooter that you're uh, like rideshare type scooters and stuff like that, what that means for that manufacturer or for that business operator is if you're not hosting battery draining cell chips or Wi-Fi connectivity or anything like that, but you're operating on this like little single antenna, um, you might have 30 to 40% more in field productivity because you're not having to charge it as much. And so kind of all the way down, it's like get rid of the extra hardware that you don't need, skip over all the stuff that we invented along the way and go back to the basics. And so that's really kind of what's being unlocked right now is things that we know we wanted, but we just ignored them or moved past them because it wasn't economical or practical. Now those things are becoming even more practical and really feasible. So that's, 
that's kind of where we are with IoT now. Some of the, like, you can get sensors for anything. And it's literally about what problem are you trying to solve? What information do you need? So how do you stack the sensors, you know, on that particular device or asset or out in the field uh, for your particular purpose? And we're in the era now as this is kind of the second deep head cycle, which is kind of blowing up outside of just IoT. But um, this is where all of the innovation is happening on IoT and Helium IoT, obviously leading the charge. Uh, and it's just kind of unlocked itself uh, with its migration over to Solana. This is this is so cool to he- hear the way it's you're talking about cool. it because it feels, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mentioned the thing that sort of hooked me on blockchain was like DeFi on Ethereum, you know, a few years back feeling like, oh, there's there's all these inefficiencies that stem from having, you know, big companies manage the movement of money where, you know, they, they're, they're taking big old transaction fees, uh, you know, to, to move money between individuals or, or corporations where with, with DeFi, we can, we can lower the fees significantly, um, make the transactions more, you know, one, one-to-one instead of bridging with, through another entity. And it sounds like what you're saying almost sounds like the same thing, but like you said, for data packets, right? Where it's like, hey, instead of having to build massive pieces of infrastructure, right, that, that are incredibly costly to build, and then everybody has to go through these, these big physical infrastructure, you know, networks built by giant conglomerates, we can go through these very small, very power efficient uh financially efficient pieces of equipment to, to, to do the same thing with less power consumption, less money consumption, right? Like it's, it's so cool to me because you, like you phrase it as it's almost like we're going backwards in some senses, but it's because we've moved forward in, in sort of the network cryptography, like the cryptography side of things, I guess, and the ability to communicate in a decentralized fashion. That's so cool to me. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's the power of blockchain, right? I mean, you take out, you take out like a, a big employment center with a a ton of people pushing paperwork and communicating with each other. And it's the blockchain that actually powers it. Right. And so when we explain, um, kind of what we do, uh, to people here locally, or just when I have conversations with folks, they, a lot of times they ask like, okay, so who are your customers? And that's one of those like kind of like triggering questions because, you know, like as a, as a startup or like, you know, it's like you got to have customers. But I mean, if we build infrastructure and it's open source in a sense and it's trustless, right? Um, you know, in some ways it's kind of like a build it and they will come because I don't actually know who the customers are. I don't actually sell data plans to the customers. Technically, anybody who wants to use the network can and it can be anybody and everybody. It could be a corporation down to, you know, a 15 year old hobbyist who's building, you know, like his, the next version of a lawn mowing business using some of this technology. And ultimately those customers that need the data are interacting with the blockchain, just like the, the blockchain is interacting with us. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, then how do you have revenue? It's like, well, we're actually compensated by the blockchain. Okay. Well then who's using it? Well, I don't know. I mean, like anybody who wants Anyone to. Anyone who wants to, and that's the point of it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's such a cool, it's such a cool time to be alive. Um, you know, and one of the, the bigger, broader things about this, and you mentioned DeFi and stuff like that. It's like, 
um, things that we just assumed weren't possible, or we just moved in a particular direction. And now this thing happens. Blockchain happens. Blockchain applied to more than just the transfer of money happens. Um, and that results in new business models, you know, and that's one of the things that we've had to figure out is like, how do we actually build a business around this, um, you know, without any paying customers? So, but it's, it's, a, it's a cool place to be. And, you know, I mentioned, um, that first deep end cycle, which was pretty much, it wasn't deep end at the time, right? Deep end is like a new thing, but helium IOT was like DY decentralized wireless, or, um, even before that they were searching for a good name for it. Um, but in the second cycle, here we are. We've gotten rid of the helium L1. We've, as Noah would say, turducked into the <laughs> Solana uh, blockchain. And there's a ton of DeFi. He, love fra- he loves phrasing it like that, too. I know. I totally stole that from him. I mean, it's, there's no better way to put it. Um, but yeah, so we've got tons of DeFi here now. And this is really kind of like one of the most interesting parts of where we are in this cycle. Um, you know, as you know, DeepIn is largely happening on Solana. There's a ton of projects. Helium Mobile is really kind of doing some awesome, awesome stuff. Um, but as we get deeper into the cycle, I think we're going to see a little bit more of a collision course between DPEN and DeFi. Because if you really think about it, we're dealing with hardware. We're dealing with capital expenditures. We're dealing with building physical infrastructure networks, whether they're telecommunications networks like the IoT network or the mobile network. Um, but then all these other things like vehicle fleets and connecting the automobiles that are not currently connected to the internet, to the blockchain, uh, virtual power plants, I mean, any kind of infrastructure. Um, and one of the benefits of decentralized infrastructure or DPIN is that it allows folks like me to jump in and build my own network for my own hometown, right? Um, for me to be a, a participant in that. Whereas before it was large entities with large subsidies taking 10, 15, 20 years to build out a network that they're going to end up overcharging their customers for for the next 50 years in order to pay for that giant expenditure. And the cycles here are sped up incredibly. I mean, a helium hotspot, you know, in the three years ago, four years ago, I was like $425, $450. Um, today they're even cheaper. Um, you know, mobile. Um, Wi-Fi hotspots now are right in that price range as well. Um, and that allows, you know, um, uh, the democratization of building and, and, and building infrastructure and for everyday people to be a part of it rather than just a few selected entities to be able to, you know, kind of um, carry that burden. Um, One might and, say it's the people's network. <laughs> oh, huh. I feel like I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Where did I hear that before? <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think that like as this accelerates and as there's more companies like ours who are kind of saying, okay, I'm not just going to put this up in my coffee shop and at the bar I go to, but I'm going to pick a broader area and I'm going to, I'm going to do this with a little bit more efficiency and scale. Um, you know, we get back into the, okay, well, we do need capital to do that. We do need, you know, uh, organization to do that. And that's still decentralized. It still allows little guys like me to do that. But for a little guy like me to have access to capital subsidies in the way that a trillion dollar giant would, um, now we've got DeFi right here. And, you know, James, like you're saying that kind of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a perfect match and, you know, we're not quite there yet. I mean, I think it's all on the same chain, which is pretty cool. Um, and so I'm excited for that to happen. But when, DPIN and DeFi 
kind of join forces, I think we're going to see a new boom in how we build things. Hey, let's have a brief intermission to thank our sponsors. We are super excited to be sponsored by Underdog Protocol. Underdog Protocol makes it really easy to mint, manage, and index digital assets on Solana. Uh, it's ideal for developers and startups. They offer gas-free NFT minting, airdrops for tokens and NFTs, and have embedded wallets. Uh, you're in great company using Underdog. We use Underdog, Solana Mobile, Soulflare, and plenty of others do uh, in order to simplify their NFT workflows. Yeah, it's so simple to mint NFTs with Underdog that this is our code right here on the Soulfate website of how we actually mint the podcast episodes as NFTs. Making a simple post request to the Underdog API, you know, if you want DevNet or Mainnet, both are supported. And you just pass in your authorization token that you get from the Underdog dashboard and then just provide in all the body details of all your NFT details. And then it mints it right away to the blockchain. Compressed NFTs, the simple API call. Check out Underdog and try it out. Yeah, I'm so so re real fast. Just just so that I understand the the business model, if you will, behind what you're building is is effectively we're going to build as big of a network as as we can in this area, and we'll be paid by the Helium network for for. Um, all of the traffic that goes through our hardware. Is that roughly, I'm sure there's a lot of nuance there, but is that roughly on track? Feel free to correct me. <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, an even more traditional way of looking at it would be, you know, I mean, in some ways we're just a new age mining company. You know, I mean, when you think about mining, you're supporting the network through hardware or validation or, or you know, however you're doing it. And we're operators, um, you know, in the same right. Uh, and so we earn rewards based on our productivity and how we support, you know, the relative impact of what we support that blockchain for. Uh, so in this case, it was um, Helium IoT and building a coverage network that spanned a large geographical area. Um, and we're paid in Helium. Um, you know, or back then it was HNT and now we've got the SubDAO system. So uh, our IoT network is earning IoT, our mobile networks earning mobile. Um, and that's our primary source of income. So very traditional mining um, from a business model standpoint. Um, but I always like to tell people, you know, this this took us 10 years to go from proof of work mining to even doing something like this. And so, you know, for me being an early miner and kind of my brain kind of got set in that way of like, okay, I see opportunities like that. Um, but then recognizing that I couldn't take 400 of these IoT miners and stick them in a basement and run up the power bill, just like I did last time. Uh, this was going to require a little bit of a different strategy. So I would say 80% of it is still mining. 20% of it is that you're not actually optimizing for energy efficiency or power consumption or hash rate. Here, you're optimizing for quality coverage. And what that means is that you can't put all your hardware in one place. That's the key difference. You've got to spread it around. You've got to actually decentralize your hardware, actually distribute it geographically. And that's what builds the best network. And so that's what we're optimizing for. And really what we've done over the last year and a half, um, and I think we had this realization pretty early on, was, you know, I looked at this Helium IoT thing in the early days, three years ago, three and a half years ago. And I was like, you know what, like, this is really cool. But if I'm going to go all into this, I need to, I need to really get comfortable with this concept. And I did. And that concept was if this actually works, right? Because it was all experimental at the time. If this actually works, 
there will be copycats. This, if this works, this is how we're going to do things going forward. And so for us, it wasn't really like, okay, let's blanket this area in IoT coverage. It was, let's blanket this area in IoT coverage while we're, while we're building out the columns and the pillars and the framework for a new age mining company that can facilitate all the new technologies that will come if this works. And we really did kind of focus really, really, really deeply on building out an infrastructure that could support what came to be deep in. Um, so locations matter. Um, you know, your infrastructure at those locations matter, access to internet, access to power, access to line of sight, rooftops, whatever it may be. Um, and then obviously all the things that come with that, which are, well, people own these buildings, people live in these buildings, people work in these buildings. Uh, you know, so how do we design an infrastructure that, you know, now we've got, you know, there's, there's 10 different networks that you can stick on your roof if you wanted to. There's two or three prominent networks, um, that, you know, you can build onto cars. Um, and so just kind of imagining that going out, you know, if you think of proof of work mining, racks can be replaced with bigger racks. Um, ventilation systems can be upgraded. Uh, but you need a warehouse. You need something energy efficient. You need the ability to bring in the new next stuff. And for this, it was just about building that infrastructure. And so we picked the 1600 square mile area and we understood this as like, okay, so helium operated on a proof of coverage mechanism. Right. That was their first proof mechanism. Uh, they invented it. They spearheaded it. They pioneered it. They developed it. And, you know, now it's still a valid proof mechanism that's been carried over in, in a lot of ways to the mobile network. One thing that we saw was that with every new network that comes along that tries to achieve something differently, they have the ability to rely upon the previous proof mechanism that's been established. Right. And so, you know, that's where kind of composability comes in. Composability of proofs, composability of the technology or the problems that you're wanting to solve. And then ultimately composability of rewards and the data. Um, and so for us, it's, uh, it's a stackable system. And that's why we've really dubbed this as the test bet. Um, if you take something like Demo, for example, um, you know, they're, they're selling their new device, the Macaron. Um, that actually offloads all of the data that it collects to the Helium IoT network. So here in the test bed, as we have new demo devices uh, rolling out to cars and they drive around the test bed, they're actually offloading onto our IoT network. So from a mining perspective or a profitability perspective, we're actually earning demo token for that, for that effort, as well as earning uh, IoT through data transfer. Um, in other ways, you've got other networks that are relying on Helium's uh, proof of coverage mechanism in order to support their proof mechanism um, and to get closer to like proof of location and things like that. Um, so, you know, I think that one of the things that we've been really fortunate to, to, to do is to really build it out in a way that we can maintain this infrastructure. And for every new network that comes along, they can look at the test bed and they can see, okay, well, good. You guys already have a, you know, a foundation layer of Helium IoT. That way, all of our devices will work. Oh, cool. You guys already have this. That's great because now our offload will work. And so this has become one of the, the quickest, easiest, earliest places to go if you're pre-market. If you're working with prototypical hardware, if you're getting ready to launch and go direct to consumer, that's a big step. So for us to be able to provide real-world data where you know the base layer requirements that might not be built out and let's just say... Boise, Idaho or something, no, you know, 
I'll, I'll go to Boise, but I'm just saying like pick, pick a <laughs> random place and um, maybe they don't have a network built out as well as, you know, efficiently. Um, that may not be the best place to test something that relies on that layer. Um, and so that's why a lot of new teams and we work with literally everybody in DPEN um, from the pen and pad stage to pre-hardware to post-hardware to pre-consumer to Helium Mobile, which is rolling out to moms and dads. And you know, that's a whole other thing about mass adoption, which is, is really cool. Right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. Um, you know, and so um, we've really set ourselves up to be a utility for DPEN. Um, for, for many, many years to come. And we're just going to keep on layering on each one of these new networks and kind of opening up the possibilities for unlimited testing, unlimited showcasing, and really seeing what translates from paper to real life. I want to cool. <laughs> walk, walk back just two minutes because you mentioned testbed before we really explained what testbed was. I think, I think the explanation is in everything you just said, which is it sounds like that's kind of the term that you're using right now to, to, to describe your network. Uh, and it sounds like that's, that's a little bit of an effort to attract, um, the type of user you want today. Like you said, you don't have control over who the end user on the network is necessarily, but also you have incentive to attract users and you're saying, Hey, I've got this network that we've, that we've built up in, in Arkansas. And if you're, trying to, to build devices that work on these kinds of networks, this is the best place to come test that, test those devices out, test out your new use case, et cetera. Come try it on mycelium networks in Arkansas. Is that, is that right? Bingo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we try to, we, we, oftentimes we call it a uh, deep in playground. Um, and that's kind of like the conversations that we have with all these teams, you know, it's like, okay, you're trying to create a, um, you know, a, a product that goes in an HVAC system and it's a $7 sensor and, you know, it's a low, it's a, a pressure sensor. Um, and you want us to put it in 50 random, uh, industrial, commercial and residential buildings. Uh, and the goal there is to be able to see, uh, A, is there coverage in good places? Can we connect, you know, to the offload, the data offload nodes that we need to? Will it work seamlessly? How does our software work? Um, and this is a really cool idea, but, uh, you know, if you're the HVAC guy of a particular neighborhood, it costs you $7 for the sensor. Just stick it in every single one of these HVAC units and set up your dashboard. And if you see pressure drop, then you know you've got, you know, an issue. And uh, a lot of times that's actually all you need for an HVAC system to know that it's struggling or, or about to go out. Um, and, you know, if that business model is based off of early alert systems, then coming to Northwest Arkansas is like, it's a kind of a no brainer because you know, everything's going to work from a network standpoint. You can focus on your product. Um, let's say that, you know, two weeks into it, you're like, okay, we got a bunch of good results, but we don't really want to do this at residential places. So we've got 25 houses. Can we move those to commercial spots? You know, for us to do that in two to three days, because we've got this big bundle of locations already set and ready to go. Um, we try to make it really easy. Um, you know, for deep into flourish, we have to have these sorts of testing zones. Um, and we're getting better and better as the technology is getting broader and broader. People are getting more and more creative with what they're trying to build, uh, to continue to kind of expand our infrastructure and what we can offer these teams. Ultimately, we look at ourselves as both an incubator for early stage projects, technologies, blockchains, hardware systems. 
Um, and then as teams get into the hardware phase and they, they want results, they want to tweak their, um, you know, their testing and, and get varied results and look at that data and, and figure out what's wrong and what's right and, and change it up a little bit. Um, you know, that's what we've set ourselves up to be there as an accelerator and to speed up these flywheels, right? Depends all, all about the flywheel. Um, and if we can accelerate these flywheels, then I feel like we're doing our job. One of the things I'm really curious about, and you've kind of alluded to it a couple of times of like, you have 1600 miles or square miles, I think you said, of total coverage. There's absolutely no way that you guys own all of this land, all of these buildings. So I'm curious about the conversations and like how getting these physical nodes running, this physical hardware running in all of these places to get such coverage, having access to different types of properties, residential, commercial, you know, whatever. So you can have these conversations with like putting, putting this HVAC, um, HVAC sensor in seven houses versus three industrial buildings. Like those are very different conversations that I'm sure you would have to have with, with the owners or operators of those buildings. So I'm curious how those conversations have gone and kind of how that like started off. Yeah, that's a really great question. It started off with a lot of learning. A lot of learning because, you know, this is that 20% that hasn't been figured out compared to the traditional mining model. Um, and, you know, it required conversations that we weren't ready to have uh, when we started. We didn't know what the stress points would be for people. You know, for for us, it was just like, you know, I go to my buddy and I'm like, hey, man, stick this in your window. It's not going to use too much of your Internet. And he's like, OK, cool. That was the easy part. The first 32 nodes were like that. Uh, the next batch of nodes was, um, you know, I think when we you had, saturate the friends and family network. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, okay, how do we get new people to have this conversation with us? That was the first thing. Then it's like, okay, well, you want to connect something to my internet? Hmm. I was like, oh, okay. I Skeptical. Can see yeah. Issues with that. Oh, my wife doesn't like wires. It's like, oh, okay. How do we make this thing look pretty on your windowsill? Um, so, you know, there was a lot of learning and, um, it took us a little while, probably took us six to eight months to really figure out a good model for what we wanted to achieve. Um, I will say this, um, most of the industry at the time and still today, I believe operates on kind of a revenue share model. Um, and that's kind of the lowest friction model. I think most people who buy a helium hotspot or, um, buy like two or three hive mappers and, you know, want their, their buddies to help them out. Um, you know, it's very easy to say, Hey, I don't know how much I'm going to earn off of this or how productive it's going to be, or even if it works, but if it does work, I'll give you half and I get half, right? You get half for doing the work or for hosting it, supporting it. And I get half because I bought the device and I, I paid for it up front. And there might be a 40, 60 or 70, 30, you know, just kind of depending on the situation. But that kind of is the industry standard that started very, very early on because with crypto, it's volatile. You don't know where the market's going to be. Um, you know, you could stack a bunch of tokens now that are worth nothing or a whole lot later, or you could be earning a good ROI with, you know, favorable equilibrium market conditions that, uh, you would prefer if they stayed that way, you know, and they didn't, but they don't. Um, and you know, what we looked at was, okay, we want to build something that is not just going to be here for this helium IOT cycle, but the same infrastructure that we're building will be able to support everything that comes for the next decade. So how do we get, you know, and, and one of the early things was like host acquisition was hard because we weren't, we weren't, we didn't know what to promise. Yeah, we didn't know what to tell people like, uh, like, okay, well, how much do you think this will earn? I don't, 
I don't know, maybe 20, maybe 40. Are you on a hill? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so we had to kind of look at this like, okay, we're going to actually try to build a real business. We're going to go to homeowners. We're going to go to other businesses. They don't know anything about crypto. They don't want to know anything about crypto. And three years ago, well, before three years ago, you know, it was like crypto was bad. Crypto was for drug dealers. Crypto was for like, if you're up to no good, you're doing crypto in your basement. Um, and that was, that was just kind of the general idea. So to, to knock on somebody's door and be like, Hey, I'm going to put this crypto hardware in your windowsill and I'm going to give you half. It was just, that was not going to work. Um, and we also knew that we weren't trying to do this whole, you know, land grab, like go out and like put up nodes in Connecticut and New York and, you know, New Mexico and just like wherever we had friends, it was very, um, focused. It was a very, uh, particular approach at this particular area for the long term. So what we came up with was we've got to have a unique host network that addresses all of the problems uh, that are inherent in just kind of what existed at the time. So we do things very, very differently. Um, and I'm not suggesting that everybody should do this, but for our particular effort, which is to build and maintain this dense test bed, right? That kind of, it's like a city state in the middle of nowhere. Um, so what we developed was something along the lines of a kind of like a traditional SaaS company, but backwards. And we kind of call it a reverse subscription model. Um, so what that means is if I come to you, Nick, and I'm like, Hey, um, you know, I've got this company in my ceiling. We build decentralized networks. Um, it allows for, you know, data transfer or powers your cell phone or, you know, whatever this is. And, and you've got a business or a home at this location. And we would love to uh, be able to sign you up for this program. And, and the way that this works is, um, we pay you monthly, a flat monthly fee. Uh, you can put that towards your internet bill. You can put that towards business expenses. You can just, you know, receive it in Venmo or PayPal and you can, you know, use it for internet shopping, whatever it is that you want, pay your Netflix bill. Uh, but we'll, we promise to pay you a monthly flat fee in us dollars every single month. And you can expect that no matter what, as long as you help us keep our equipment online and we're going to come out and we're going to set up this equipment. Uh, we will need your internet. We will need a power source. We may need to be out on the outside of your building, you know, just kind of depending on the network. Uh, and from time to time, we'll come back and we'll switch this out with newer, better hardware. And probably stuff that allows for more capabilities as we get better at what we do. And approaching it that way, we gave those hosts stability, a clear expectation of what they could anticipate. We promised to pay them every month and we had to do that. We have to pay them every month, whether that location uh, that costs us $25 a month, for example, for that host earns us $4 in token revenue or $4,000 in token revenue. Um, and of course that changes during a bull market and a bear market, but we ultimately shielded our hosts and the people that we asked to participate and the people we technically onboarded into this whole ecosystem. We shielded them from the volatility of the crypto markets. We shielded them from having to, uh, custody their crypto, having to learn about crypto, uh, having to handle the crypto tax side of things. We just basically absorbed all that as an organization and gave people, you know, essentially a flat monthly rate as if it was a subscription for them. And then what we realized, um, you know, after a couple months is install goes well, nobody sees like problems with their internet or, you know, power going out or any, you know, no issues. You forget about it after a couple weeks, you get your first payment. You're like, Oh, cool, honey, look, it worked. You know, we got, we got a payment. You don't think about it again for a month. You get another payment. You're like, Oh, awesome. And then at that point, it's like, 
try to take that away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's because, um, you know, it is in, in a way free money, but I think the promise of this is like, it's all shared resources that you're getting billed for and you're getting billed, let's say 80 bucks a month for your internet that you're never going to get throttled on. Most people, you're never going to use that much. And you probably wouldn't buy that much. If you really looked at it, you would probably get away with $30 worth, but they're going to charge you 80 because of this long time ingrained um, infrastructure thing where they started this process 40 years ago and they've got government subsidies to pay back. And so they're going to continue to charge more and more. And so, um, you know, we've kind of in a way onboarded people into the ecosystem without having to go through the, the pain points of introducing them to crypto or having to really explain to them, you know, exactly what's going on. But in effect, we're showing them slowly over time. Um, and so this has allowed yeah, that's us really to, cool. yeah, I mean, the, the best thing was, I mean, it sucks, right? Bear market sucks. But for the last year and a half, I mean, things have been pretty tough. Um, we've actually watched the Helium IoT network really suffer, even pre-migration, like hotspots were going offline. And a lot of the reason for this was, you know, the hundreds and thousands of agreements that have been made around the United States and around the world on that revenue share plan. People went from making, you know, a homeowner went from making $40 a month, getting half of that down to making 14 cents a month, you know, at the worst time. Because that, like, that revenue share model was based on token price and, and the actual crypto token. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And so we actually we grew, our, we grew our host network um, during the bear market and really kind of doubled it, close to doubled it over the course of that time. And um, so I, I attribute a lot of our our success up until this point to that innovative way of doing stuff. Um, but in a way it's kind of like, did we really, was it really innovative or innovative or did we kind of just go back and go back to the basics uh, once again? And so, um, yeah, I think we do things a little bit differently here. I think that's very conducive for the type of living infrastructure that we're trying to support and the more options that we have, whether they're homes, um, commercial buildings, water towers, fire towers, you know, whatever. Um, the more options we have, the more we can offer each one of these new networks, products, or teams as they work on, hey, what can we build? You know, what do you have available? Do you have something by a lake? Um, and so for us to continue to kind of push that, um, you know, the numbers of options in our, in our test bed, that's going to be a very important part of our, our continued growth. That's uh that's that's amazing. We we are um we're coming close to time here and so I want to I want to give you an opportunity obviously like we've been asking a bunch of questions but I'm sure there are things that you want to talk about that you want to get get across to our listeners. Is there anything you haven't talked about that that you want to, you know, make make sure people hear before we wrap today? Yeah, I mean I think the the thing that's like the most cool thing to me right now is that all of this is happening on Solana. Um, when Helium kind of announced that they would be looking at new chains to migrate to, that was a little scary, right? Because we were all used to, you know, what do you mean you're going to abandon a blockchain? This is one of the coolest things about Helium is that you have your own blockchain. Um, and Noah would probably be like, oh my God, here we go. Um, but, you know, for, for that conversation to unfold and, you know, we looked at options, right. And, and it was kind of a community discussion. Ultimately we, you know, we settled on Solana, the team settled on Solana, the community got behind that. Um, but before that decision was made, 
I was doing my research as well. And we as a team were doing our research and trying to figure out where things were going. And we very early on decided, oh man, we hope it's Solana, right? Because like, if that, if that works, like that opens up a whole world of possibilities. Um, and I mean, even surprising to me, now we're seeing Deepin develop and the vast majority of Deepin is on Solana. And there's so many synergies with, with that in itself, right? We talked about the DeFi connection, um, but the composability between Deepin, like that's its own thing, right? And so to have all that on chain, uh, where more of these protocols are going to really start interacting with each other on chain, um, that is really incredible. And, um, you know, I'm a, admittedly, I'm a huge Solana fan. I'm a Solana maxi in, in a lot of ways. Um, Us too. And yeah, <laughs> go figure. Um, but, you know, I'm just excited about um, the fact that Deepin itself in, in the industry, that's blowing up. I mean, that is, that is expanding at a rapid, rapid rate. It's all happening on this chain. But what that means for Solana, I mean, when we talk about mass adoption, when we talk about um, integrating, you know, what happens on chain into the real world, um, there's not a lot of conversation in the Deepin narrative, which is, which is pretty wild right now, um, about mass adoption and the, the regular everyday things that are happening. And so I think that a um, little bit biased, but I think it's one of the best things that's happened to Solana. That's, uh, that's awesome. I, I am, I am loving this and you have, I, I feel like newly inspired to, to dig in and learn about, learn more about Deepin and, and get more involved. I, uh, this is pretty much what I told Noah when, when he was on is like, okay, I got to get more involved. And I, and I did to a certain extent, right. And then your enthusiasm drops off a little bit. It's like now I feel it's got a new wave of of excitement and and energy here. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for helping open my eyes to like the what's going on and and the and the possibilities and how 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 cool it is, right? Um, man, there's so much more we could talk about. I feel like I have, I have so many more questions. I there's so much I want to dig into. I would I would love to have you back on sometime to to chat further. Absolutely, be happy to. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree with that. It would be so many more interesting things that I'm sure you and your company have experienced that most people just have not yet. Hopefully soon more people will um, trying to grow these um, more region focused decentralized networks. And that way we can you know expand this coverage more broadly and, and expand it faster and, and with more capability. So yeah, I would love to have you back and, and have some more chats. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up for now and we'll do this again sometime soon. Um, thanks so much for being here and to all the listeners. Thank you. And we'll uh, see you all next time. Bye bye. Thanks.